Recording now? Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the food and, and those that prepared it. Uh, wonderful meal. Um, we just ask that you bless this time as we dig into your word. Uh, give us ears to hear and uh, a voice for me to speak. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, we're doing a, a couple small chapters this morning, so it should go real easy. We're doing uh, Psalms 1 through 72. So, for this, I use the Bible Project Guides, uh, Derek Kinder's book on Psalms 1 through 72. It's over there if anybody wants to take it home and dig into it afterwards. Great book. Uh, commentaries by David Guzik and uh, Vernon, Dr. J. Vernon McGee's. So, heavily resourced all of those uh, for this. So Psalms is a collection of about 100, or actually 150 ancient Hebrew poems, songs and prayers that come from different eras of Israel's history. 73 of these Psalms are connected to King David, who was a poet and a harp player. There were also many other authors involved. Uh, Asaph wrote 12 poems. Uh, the sons of Korah produced 11 and other worship leaders in the temple contributed as well. Herman and Ethan wrote one each. Two are connected to King Solomon and one other to Moses. Nearly one-third of the poems, 49 to be exact, are anonymous. So many of these poems were used by Israel's temple choirs. Uh, but the book of Psalms is not actually a hymn book. In the period after Israel's exile to Babylon, these ancient songs were gathered together with many other Hebrew poems and intentionally arranged into the book of Psalms. The entire work has a unique design that you won't notice unless you read it beginning to end. I did that last night. Well, it was a dream, but... <laughs> Uh, if you pay close attention to the headings of the poems, you'll notice that there are five, in five different places, Bible translators included book one through book five. The whole book of Psalms has been divided into five books or sections. The reason for these divisions is that each section has a final poem, which concludes with a similar line that looks like an editorial edition. May the Lord... The God of Israel be blessed forever. Amen and amen follows each one of these psalms as it transitions into the next book. Uh, Vernon McGee wrote, one of the more noticeable features about the book of Psalms is this systematic arrangement. This reveals that, there were, that they were not put together in a haphazard manner. There is a definite organization. The major divisions correspond to the Torah. The Torah is the complete... Compli Compilation. Thank you. Appreciate that. Just <laughs> feed me whenever that happens. <laughs> Compilation of the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, namely the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Torah is known as the... Who's got it? Starts with a P. What's the Torah now? Yeah, there you go. The Pentu. Uh, or the five books of Moses by Christians. It is also known as the written Torah in Jewish, Jewish tradition. 
This is not an artificial division, but follows rather closely to the Petut of Moses. In each major division, there are lesser divisions or clusters and series of psalms which develop a particular subject. So the first section, today what we're covering is book one and book two of psalms. So the first section is uh, psalms one through 41, uh, which is man in a state of blessedness, the fall and recovery. So basically man in view. Uh, It has been well stated that the book of Genesis is the entire Bible in miniature. All great truths of scripture are in Genesis. So Psalms 1 and 2, the introduction to the key themes of the Psalms. So the book has a conclusion and an internal organization of five sections. Psalm 1 and 2 serve as the book's introduction. These Psalms clearly stand apart from the rest of the book, or the rest of book one, based on their authorship. They are anonymous, while the majority of Psalms in the first book are linked to King David. So their content is also unique. Psalms 1 starts by celebrating the person who is blessed because they mediate on, on, or meditate on the Torah, prayerfully reading and obeying. The Hebrew word, word Torah means teaching, but it also refers to the first five books of the Bible that contain the foundational laws of Judaism. It seems that the word has it seems that the word has both of these meanings in Psalm 1. The book of Psalms is being offered as a new Torah that will teach God's people about the lifelong practice of prayer as they strive to obey the commandments in the first Torah. Psalms 2 is a poetic reflection on God's promise to King David, recounted in 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13. It's actually in the whole book of 2 Samuel 7. But uh, 12 through 13 says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God told David that from his line would come a messianic or anointed king who would establish God's kingdom over all the world, defeating evil and rebellion among the nations. The psalm concludes by saying that all those to take refuge in this messianic king will be blessed. The same word used in the opening of Psalm 1. Blessed and blessed. Together, these two poems tell us that the book of Psalms is designed to be the prayer book of God's people who are striving to be faithful to the commands of the Torah and hoping and waiting for the messianic kingdom, the return. Psalms 3 through 41 is the foundation of covenant faithfulness. With these themes introduced in in 1 and 2, the the, uh, introduction, so to speak, we can begin to see intentionally 
how the smaller books have been designed around the same idea. For example, book one contains a collection of poems, as they all do, but Psalms 15 through 24 that open and close with a call to covenant faithfulness. The opening Psalm 15 is followed by three poems, Psalms 16 through 18, that depict a model of such faithfulness, calling out to God for deliverance and being rewarded and elevated as king. These three have a symmetrical pair in 20 through 23, where David of the past has become an idealized image of the future of the messianic king, who will call upon God for deliverance and be rewarded with a kingdom over all nations. So let's look at some of the individual books in this section. Psalm 3 through 7 covers the sorrow of God's remnant. These five psalms form a brief series which deals with the sorrow of God's remnant, the leftover. The reference is directly to the turbulation in the end days. Um, Psalm 3, the perfect man rejected, is a morning prayer. The trials of the godly in Israel. Since trials are common to all of God's people, the comfort is for all of God's people as well. And that's what we get in Psalm 3. Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. This is the plea of the Son of Man and those who plead in his name. Psalm 5 is a morning prayer. Uh, This is a cry of the godly in the time of great trouble. They seek a refuge. In Psalm uh, 5, 7 through 8, if you want to flip to that, if you're catching up here, if not, I'll read it. Uh, Verse 7, But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. So I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. This was David's confidence. It wasn't that David thought he was righteous and all others were sinners. His ground of confidence was in the mercy of God not in the greatness of himself. I fear of you, I will, in fear of you, I will worship. David's worship wasn't based on his feelings, but on his reverence for a righteous and holy God. Make your way straight before my face, is the last line in verse 8. This reflects David's constant reliance on God. David needed God to lead him and to make the way straight. David walked the right way, but was humble about it. He knew it was only God's power and work in him that kept him from the way of the wicked. For me, this simple line has been one of the greatest reminders of my need to rely on God. 
make my way straight. Too often I try to fix things myself long before I turn to God. Anybody else? I think I recall that every once in a while. Yeah. The amazing thing about that is only about half of you raised your hands. (laughs) We're still trying to make our way straight. Yeah. (laughs) Keep working on it there, Russ. Keep working on it. So jump into Psalm 6, the perfect man in midst of chastisement or the bruised heel. Darkness, distress, and death is full in this song. Trials produce a broken spirit. The plea of David is that God will judge him in mercy and not in anger. What a lesson for us. Let's read the first four verses of Psalm 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me, in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. First, we have David's cry for God to judge him fairly. To judge him not in anger or displeasure, but with mercy. David was praying for mercy because if God actually judged him fairly, what would be the result? We don't deserve anything from God. We are given God's mercy and God's grace. David knew that. It comes out clear in the Psalms. Secondly, I had to turn these verses to my life. You might want to try that. Am I asking God to judge me in a way that I won't for other people? You know, that's, that's one of the, the lessons in this. At least it's one that's struck me like a knife uh, as I read through that chapter. Uh, Psalm 7, cry for revenge, Cush, the Benjamite, or maybe Saul. This is, a prophetically, this is prophetically the cry of the remnant during the Great Tribulation in Psalm 7. This concludes the first cluster of five psalms. So, Next, in Psalms 16 through 41, we have Christ in the midst of his people, sanctifying them to God. One standout for me in this is Psalms 19. I think you just preached on that. (laughs) But uh, let's read the first six verses. Of 19? Of Psalm 19. So this is the cosmos revealed in the glory and power of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. 
in them he has set a tabernacle for the son, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Verse 6, its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The heavens declare the glory of God. David looked to the heavens, not the spiritual heaven where God is enthroned, but the heavens of the blue sky and the night sky. He clearly saw the glory of God declared. He could see it in the blue sky with the glory of the sun and the clouds and the beauty of sunrises and sunsets. He could see it in the night sky with the brightness of the moon and the awe of the starry sky and the cloudy spread of the distant galaxies. You know, we, we get to look up out here and see the Milky Way. You know, I remember the first time I came out here when we moved here and it's like, man, I want to see the stars. I want to see the stars. And I walked out on our, on our back porch, turned all the house lights off so I get a good view. And I looked up and went, oh man, it's cloudy. I didn't have my glasses on. <laughs> and then I looked up again and went, those aren't clouds. That's the Milky Way. Mm. You know, the amazing beauty of that. You know, they didn't have a lot of light back there in David's day. You know, the candle lamps and so on. So they had beautiful views of the skies. And he got to look up and see the glory of God in those skies. You know, we get that opportunity out here. These together with their size, their awe, their grandeur shouted to David and all who would see. The God who created all of this is glorious. And this is evidence of his glory. Verse 2, day unto day utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. The day sky and the night sky around here as well as the rest of the world speak to us. At least it does to me. And reveal knowledge about the glory, wisdom, and creative greatness of God. Of the line reveals knowledge, there Kinder wrote, knowledge is well matched with night, since without the night skies, man would have known until recently nothing but emptiness in the universe. If God had not placed the stars in the night sky, the blackness of night would have communicated powerfully to all humanity, ancient and modern, there is nothing and no one out there. God gave us the grandeur of the night sky. Tholuck, cited in Spurgeon, wrote, Though all preachers on earth should grow silent, every human mouth cease from publishing the glory of God. The heavens above will never cease to declare and proclaim his majesty and glory. They are forever preaching for, like an unbroken chain, their message is delivered from day to day and from night to night, the glory of God. 
Spurgeon also wrote, day bids us labor. Night reminds us to prepare our last home. Day bids us work for God, and night invites us to rest in him. Day bids us to look for endless day, and night warns us to escape from everlasting night. Mm -hmm. Psalm 22 is the clearest description in the Bible of what Jesus went through on the cross. I got to teach on this Sunday when when you were gone. Uh, It describes the pain and suffering that he endured for us so clearly. It also was my psalm when I turned my life back to the Lord. Um, It spoke to me in a clearer way than any other book in the Bible. And so I could easily do another entire sermon on Psalm 22. That's just a hint. (laughs) (laughs) Psalm 23, uh, the, the psalm of an old shepherd. One must know the good shepherd of Psalm 22 and have walked with him in a life to know him intimately and to know the great shepherd of Psalm 23. In John 10, 27 and 28, we read Jesus' words. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Verse 28, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. In Psalm 23, verse 4, we read the words so often spoken at funerals. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That second line, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, to me is a standout in the entire chapter. It's not because I'm a giant that I fear no evil. No strength in me can stand up to pure evil. None. I am not enough. You are not enough. But we don't have to fear. Why? The second half of that line, for you are with me. We have nothing to fear. We have God on our side. Psalm 38 opens with an almost identical verse as Psalm 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Of this verse, Spurgeon wrote, the anger of others I can bear, but not thine. As thy love is most sweet to my heart, so thy displeasure is most cutting to my conscience. Psalm 41, jumping even further ahead. The Messianic Psalm. It opens with blessed and closes with blessed. Jesus quoted verse 9 in reference to Judas in John 13, 18. Uh, John 13, 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. 
direct quote from Psalm 41. This is the last psalm in the Genesis section. So jumping to book two, uh, which covers Psalms 42 through 72, uh, the hope for the messianic kingdom. Psalm 42 through 49 covers Israel's ruin. 50 through 60, Israel is the re- Israel's redeemer. And 61 through 72 is Israel's redemption. Book two, Psalms 42 through 72, opens with two poems united in their hope for a future return to the temple in Zion. Psalms 42 and 43, an image closely associated with the hope of the messianic kingdom. Book two closes with a corresponding poem that depicts the future reign of the messianic king over all the nations in Psalm 72. This poem echoes many other passages in the prophets about the messianic kingdom and concludes by saying that this king's reign will bring the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham by bringing God's blessing to all the nations. So I'm going to jump back to Genesis 12.3. I will bless those, and this is God's promise to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 22, 17 and 18, we read, Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And that is the promise fulfilled. 49, or I'm sorry, uh, Psalms 42 through 49 covers Israel's ruin. This series of seven psalms by the sons of Korah are prophetic pictures of Israel in the last days. Psalm 42 concludes with the heart cry of hope for deliverance in verse 11. This is not redemption by blood, which took place in Egypt at the death of the firstborn, but is redemption by the power that took place at the Red Sea. Psalm 46, God is our refuge. This psalm and the next two present a picture of the benefits of setting up his kingdom. In Psalm 46, verse 1 and 3 cover the sufficiency of God. Verses 4 through 7, the security of God. And verses 8 through 11, the supremacy of God. (coughs) Psalms 50 through 60, and yes, we're jumping quickly here. Um, Israel's Redeemer. Psalm 51 is the Bible's most powerful personal prayer of confession. Let's read the beginning of that, verses 1 through 4 in Psalm 51. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone to Bathsheba. 
Verse 1, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. (coughs) G. Campbell Morgan wrote this great song pulsating with the agony of a sin-stricken soul helps us to understand the stupendous wonder of the everlasting mercy of our God. The words, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. The title of this psalm gives the tragic context for David's plea. He had sinned in murder, in adultery, in hiding his sins, and in a hardness against repentance. He thought he could let nobody know, hide it away. He had, he had a plan, and God laughed, um, like all of our plans, unless they're God's plans. It took the bold confrontation of Nathan the prophet to shake him from this. Yet once shaken, David came in with great honesty and brokenness before God. You know, that, that's one of those great lessons of the Psalms is, you know, so often we see in the Psalms a, a cry, a plead for help, and then a, the, the next section is how glorious God is, and then the next is either God forgive me or God I praise you. And it's this working through the same process that we need to take as Christians and as men. And, you know, so often we start out and want to hide what we do from God. We think we can. Um, And then we find out we can't, and we realize and we remember what God's done in our life. You know, those are so many of the cries in this, in the Psalms is, you know, Lord, Psalm 22, you know, crying out, why have you forsaken me, Lord? And ending with, I will praise you all of my days. You know, that, that's the same process we go through every time we turn away from God or sin. You know, first off, we try to hide it and we think, oh man, I wasn't so bad. It was somebody else's fault. If nobody knows, I'll be fine. You know, that was David. You know, if, if I can hide this, I'll be fine. The problem is, is we can't hide it from our own hearts. So it eventually destroys us. We've got to give it to God. Multitude of your tender mercies in that line. Men are greatly terrified at the multitudes of our sins. You know, that for, for my life, that was crushing to try to look back and think of what I was without God and, and the evil that I was involved in. That, that guilt and all of that can, can just stop you from seeking God. 
I'm not, there's no way God can forgive me. You know, David's a perfect example of what God can forgive and, and how God can still use us in and after our sin as long as we seek him. So we're greatly terrified of all of our sins, the multitude of our sin. But here's a comfort. Our God hath multitude of mercies. If our sins be the numbers, or be in number, sorry, this is Spurgeon again. If our sins be in number as the hairs on your head, God's mercies are the stars in the heavens. Verse three, my sin is always before me. David didn't say my punishment is ever before me. He didn't cry out and say my consequences are ever before me. What bothered him was his sin. Many grieve over the consequences of sin. I got caught. What's going to happen to me? You know, we worry about those things. But few over the sin itself. And that's what God wants. God wants us to be repentant for, repentant for the sin we do. He wants us to change. He wants to change us. And that's what we got to see through the Psalms with David. So jump into Psalm 69. The silent years in the life of Christ. Next to Psalm 22, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. We read about the death of Christ in Psalm 22. In Psalm 69, we read about the life of Christ. In verse 4, we read, Those who hated me without a cause are more than the hairs on my head. They are mighty who would destroy me, being my enemies wrongfully. And though I have stolen nothing, I must restore it. It's hard for us to believe that such a wonderful, godly man as David would be so hated. This is human nature and was even more evident in the hatred without cause directed at Jesus. <laughs> Need a new compressor. <laughs> It'll get there eventually. So Jesus specifically referred to Psalm 69, verse 4, when he spoke to his disciples the night before his crucifixion. He said, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without cause. That's in John 15, 25. The plea for deliverance, jumping all the way to Psalm 70, Verse 1, simply put, answer me quickly, O God. Verse 1 says, make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. That, that opening line, make haste, O God, to deliver me. David asked God to bring help with haste, knowing that if the deliverance didn't come now, it was of no help at all. 
Therefore, he asked with a sense of her urgency. Many of our prayers would prevail more with God if they were offered with more urgency. Kinder, out of that book over there, if anybody wants to grab it, wrote, the petitions in this form of the psalm emphasize the urgency of the matter. There is not a moment to lose, or so it appears. G. Campbell Morgan believed that such prayers were flawed in their understanding of God. He said it reveals a mistake, mistaken concept or conception of God. God never needs to be called upon to hasten. He is never tarrying uselessly or carelessly. However, Morgan explained that God still wants to hear such imperfect prayers. He said, we may use any terms in our prayers if they are directed to him, knowing that he will understand and in his understanding interpret our faulty terms by his own perfect knowledge and give us his best answer to our deepest need. So my interpretation of that quote, God doesn't need our perfect prayers. Well thought out, rehearsed, sounds really good. What does God want? He wants a relationship with us. We have to understand that God knows our heart. No matter how hard we try to hide it. And to hide it with our own words and sometimes our own prayers. God knows when we pray, help me to love that person. What we actually want is that person to be smited. (laughs) He understands what's in our heart. So God's answer to that prayer would be what? Help me to love that person. God knows our heart. God's answer to that prayer is going to be to work on us. Not to work on that person or how we feel about that person. Because he knows in our heart we want them smited. God knows the heart behind our (coughs) prayers. So when we pray, we got to express our heart. God knows it already. So when you're having those problems or you're having those times when you go, ah, just whatever it is, you know, family situations, financial situations, don't make those prayers to God about what you think God wants to hear. Because God already knows what you feel. So pray what your needs are. Pray to God to help you with you. You know, these are the things that, for me, the whole book of Psalms was so important in the, the changing of my life because it taught me how to pray. You know, it, I didn't realize it at the time. You know, it was just the book that spoke to me. But I didn't know how to pray to God. And so I spent a year studying the Psalms, reading the Psalms, and it's what taught me how to reach out to God. It's, it's what taught me how to be honest with God. It's what 
you know, opening prayer. I, that's why Psalm 22 meant so much to me was the opening line. You know, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, that was my feeling at the time, but I didn't think I could say it until I read it in the Bible. You know, these cries of helplessness, these cries of hurt, these cries of anger, these, you know, all of that is embedded in the Psalms. And so for me, that, that was the key uh, to my relationship, my prayer relationship with God was to read through the Psalms. The final Psalm in this chapter, the title of this is a Psalm of Solomon. And this is from uh, David Guzik. It is possible to translate the Hebrew here. And in almost all the Psalms which reference an author as a Psalm to Solomon, the beginning of this Psalm, and some have regarded it as David's Psalm to and about his son Solomon and his greater son, the Messiah. Yet, hmm? Psalm Psalm 72. Um, Yet the most natural way to take the title is as it is given, a Psalm of Solomon, with the understanding that the line in Psalm 72, 20, refers to the collections of Psalms in Book 2, which is heavy with David's Psalm in separating Book 2 from Book 3, and Book 3 that Wally's covering next week, which begins with 11 Psalms authored by Asaph. It's possible that Solomon compiled Book 2 of Psalms, Psalms 42 through 72 that we just covered, and composed this psalm as a fitting conclusion to the collection of mostly David's psalms. It's a fitting conclusion because it unexpectedly does not focus on David himself, but on the Messiah, the King of Kings and the Son of David. I would challenge you to dig in to the next set of psalms that Wally's covering next week. Read through them. You know, pick one a night, dig into it, read through it. Be prepared for that because the psalms give us such an example of how we are to relate to God. Uh, They give such an example of, of how we should respond to God in repentance and change and trust in him. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And the the truths in it will give you a different life if you dig into it. So I challenge you to dig into it. We, We get to cover a brief little bit when we're going through this stuff. You guys get the opportunity to dig into it before or after and and learn more. If something jumps out, don't just walk away and go, wow, that was interesting. Go home today, find out where that was and spend the week digging into it. You know, that's, that's the benefit you get when we're doing these big, huge groups of, of books is the challenge for you guys to take it further. You know, now's the time. And with that, that's all I got. That's it. I need a pen.